I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. So good morning once again, everyone. Thanks for joining us on our live stream service this morning. Like I said, this week is the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene on July 22nd, and so I thought we would uh, commemorate her today and look at her story. And one of the things I love about reading the lives of the followers of Jesus is seeing how their encounters with Jesus act as an instructional path for us. They set a pattern for us, even, even in their mistakes. They're real human beings who struggle, who like many people had a rougher life than most, and I'm Many of you watching or even sitting in here, maybe, uh, <laughs> some, some of us may have had rougher lives than others, and then some of us might wish we had rougher lives than others, so our testimonies might be a little, uh, a little better. I remember one time I went away to, uh, when I first went away to, to, to college overseas, I came back after my first year and I was telling my, one of my friends about, yeah, I had these amazing experiences with God and I was such a terrible person in high school and oh, I was so bad. And he looked at me, he's like, no, you weren't. <laughs> he's like, you weren't that bad at all. What are you talking about? But many, of, many people watching maybe had, or maybe watching later, you may have had a rough life. Some of you may not have. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus encounters all of us wherever we are, regardless of what kind of life that we had. And he lifts us up from where we are, and he brings a healing unmatched by any natural means. And the story of Magdalene has a lot to show us, and I believe there's a wonderful parallel here between her encounter with the risen Christ at his tomb and our own encounter with the risen Christ as we move from the darkness of sin to the light of life. And I think that her encounter with him in the tomb is a wonderful picture of the salvation that we are offered in Christ. So we're going to talk about today the tomb, the encounter, and the mission. So the information we get about Mary Magdalene in the Gospels is that Jesus cast out many demons from her. So let's get this out right of the way that, that she was not Jesus' secret wife. This is garbage history, Okay. And this is sheer speculation. There's nothing to support this whatsoever. This was popularized a few years ago in Dan Brown's terrible book, The Da Vinci Code, which I read, and it was horrible. It's not, not because of the subject matter necessarily. It's just a badly written book. Anyway, Mary Magdalene was not Jesus' secret wife, and they did not go on to have secret children who went on to found uh, these line of Carolingian uh, kings. What we do know about Mary Magdalene is she also was not a prostitute. <laughs> right, let's just get that out of the way, too. She was not a prostitute. That is something that comes up much later in history. Uh, there's nothing in the Gospels to, to, to note this. What we do know about Mary Magdalene is that she was one through whom Jesus cast out, I believe the text says, seven demons. So she was demonized, and Jesus liberated her and freed her from oppression. And as a result, she becomes one of the most devoted of Jesus' followers. In many ways, she surpassed the disciples in her love and her devotion, right? Like we heard in the psalm, right, this morning, her love and devotion was like the psalmist who said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul, O Lord, longs after you. She is a beautiful picture of that psalm in action. And we started in our reading here in verse 11 
But we're going to go back a little bit, because at the beginning of the chapter, right, Mary goes by the tomb, and she sees the stone has been removed. So she immediately runs and tells Saints Peter and John, thinking somebody has removed Jesus' body, maybe with the intention of desecrating it or, or hiding it. So they all run to the tomb. John beats Peter, and he sees not only that the tomb was empty, but that Jesus' faith cloth was folded neatly. And even though they saw the empty tomb and believed, John notes they did not yet understand the scriptures as to what had happened. So the two of them leave for home, but we see Mary staying behind outside of the tomb and weeping. As for what happens next, I can only quote Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So while she's crying, she looks inside the tomb, and unlike Peter and John, she sees something else in there. She sees two angels sitting inside, one by where Jesus' head would have been, and one by where his feet would have been. And they ask her, why are you crying? In his sermons on these passages, St. John Chrysostom highlights the gentleness with which the angels and the risen Christ use when speaking to her, taking into consideration her sorrow, but slowly and surely leading her to joy. And she responds that Jesus has been taken away, and she does not know where they laid the body. She then turns around and mistakes Jesus for the gardener, perhaps maybe the first Karen in history, recorded history. That was a joke, by the way. She asks him to show, like, where is the body, right? I need to see where his body is so I can take him away, right? Presumably to hide his body from his enemies. He responds with one word, her name. He just says, Mary. And just like that, her eyes are opened and she recognizes her beloved Lord. And as she turns to rush over to him, he says something that might sound odd. Don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Why would he tell her this? Did he not like her? Was her reaction something that freaked him out a little bit? He's like, whoa, calm down. No, I think the answer is tied in with what he tells her to do. He tells her, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, he's telling her, don't cling to me because I have something for you to do, a mission for you to perform. She needs to tell the others that he is risen. In a sense, she's the first evangelist, equal to the apostles, as she brings the good news to the disciples who will become the apostles. And I don't know if this is true, but church tradition says she even becomes an evangelist appearing before the throne of, I believe, of one of the Caesars, testifying to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But another way to look at why he says, don't cling to me, is Chrysostom says, to have said, approach me not as you did before, for matters are not in the same state, nor shall I henceforth be with you in the same way, would have sounded harsh and high-sounding. In other words, He's gently telling her everything has changed because he has become, quote, more excellent in the flesh, right? He's the same, but he's somehow not the same in that his human flesh has been divinized. So let's talk a little a bit about some patterns here that we see. So earlier I talked about her experience and how it sets a pattern for us. And so we're going to look at that in a few minutes. And, and when reading this, I was struck by how her experience at the tomb 
is a picture of our own encounter with Christ and our own reception of the salvation that he offers to us. So let's look at the tomb. So in this part of the story, Mary is standing at and goes into and then comes out of the tomb, which doesn't quite go inside. She kind of stoops inside and looks around and then kind of turns around to see Jesus. And so we know, right, what are in the tombs? The dead, right? We know that the dead don't come out of the tombs on their own, right? But when she looks into the tomb, what's she doing, right? She's, she's weeping. She's not like just crying a little tear, like a little solitary, you know, tear, a little sniffle. She's openly bawling, right? She's sobbing. And when she encounters Jesus, what does that sorrow eventually turn into? Well, joy. Now, the tomb is the place where we die. It's also the place we are, we are given new life. Right? Remember, what is baptism said to, do, said to do for us in Scripture, right? It's said that baptism is our death, right? Where we die and where we are raised with Christ. The tomb is our participation in Christ's death and the promise of our resurrection. And it's at the tomb where our sin is dealt with. It is at the tomb where our sin and death are themselves killed and laid to rest. The tomb is where our sorrow is turned to joy, and when we die, our souls meet the risen Lord. The tomb is our baptism, our death, and being raised to new life. The encounter. Let's talk about the encounter. So not only does Mary see Jesus, but she also sees angels, right? So Peter and John, they don't see the angels when they get there. When she does, though, she sees the two angels. And when she first encounters Jesus, she doesn't know who Jesus is. Maybe she doesn't recognize him because it could be spiritually, right? The eyes of her understanding were not opened yet. It also could be that maybe he was, because if he was disfigured, right? The prophet Isaiah prophesied that his appearance would be marred beyond that of any man. And what does he do? He speaks her name. And in that moment, she knows who he is. And all of that pain, all of that sadness, all of that suffering, and all of that weeping is in a moment transformed into awe and into joy. And like he called to her, Christ calls to us. And it may have been at a point in your life when you were small, when you were a kid, when you were a child, or maybe even when you were a baby. Or it could have been later in life. Maybe you lived a hard life, but Christ broke through your walls and called to you. And you all have responded in your own way to Jesus saying, like the Eastern Church says in their liturgy, inviting the faithful to the chalice, in the fear of God, in faith, and in love, draw near. And he called for you to draw near. And you did. And your life has never been the same. He called your name. And your eyes were opened. And you responded to his love and his grace in the encounter. And then the mission after Mary encounters Christ and after her sadness has given way to joy, Jesus tasks her to witness to his resurrection to the disciples. Now this was relatively unheard of in the ancient world, right? And, and we know this, that, that women in the social order were not very high on the totem pole, right? They were very low, so much so that they could not give testimony even in court, right? But who does Jesus choose to be his first evangelist, his first witness he calls a woman to be his first evangelist, a person who the men of the time would have been 
Well, not, we don't really have to take what she says seriously. You know, she is a woman after all. And if you're watching women, this is your chance to say uh, amen here. And not only does he call a woman to do this, right? She is tasked with telling his own followers, hey, this is what's happened. Christ is raised from the dead. He says he's going to ascend soon to the Father. So it's a wonderful thing here, Jesus using her to be the first bringer of the good news. And brothers and sisters, we are tasked too with the same mission. We now live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. More and more people are unfamiliar with our faith, and even those in the faith have lost it because for many, their faith was either a cultural artifact or it had no depth. So it shattered when it came into contact with other points of view. But this is our mission field. In a sense, brothers and sisters, I think we might even be able to say that the mission field that we inhabit in our current American culture is very, very similar to the culture of the ancient world that the first Christians found themselves. And the countercultural way we're called to live as Christians is probably a way of witnessing to the faith of Christ that many of us might not be ready for, but Christ calls us to, to that. It's our task to witness to the risen Christ and to offer his life-saving gift, and we are to live it out in our families and in our workspace and in our schools. Our faith is meant to, faith is not something that is meant to be confined just to church and just to something that we do at home, right? Faith informs our lives. Our faith informs how we live. Our faith can even inform who we vote for. Our faith can inform the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, how we live our lives. There's this weird thing also, you're right, there's this, this quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's most likely not him who said it. You know, if and, I, and God bless him, I have a, a pastor I used to work for who used to say this many, many years ago, you know, if, if always preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, right? That's a very famous, very famous quote. Always preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Francis probably never said that. And that's also not true, in a sense. Because the gospel is a message, the gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is a telling of good news. And also in our increasingly post-Christian culture, there's a tendency to equate or try and boil down the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to niceness or to wokeness. Jesus said, love your neighbor. So that means now everything we were told that's not okay is okay. Everything that we were taught is a sin actually isn't a sin because we're supposed to love our neighbor, so that means everything is permitted. It's a new day now. We live in a postmodern world now. The message of Jesus and this woke niceness, this is just one of many paths that we can take to try and reach the divine that we actually already have within us. We're just trying to rediscover the spark of the divine that we all already have, and Jesus is just one of many ways that we can take to actualize that. Self-actualization instead of salvation. I was reading last night, actually, the, the, the uh, psychologist Victor Frankel, 
in Man's Search for Meaning who talked about how self-actualization, the search for self-actualization is actually something that causes us more harm than good. So there's no need then to try and actually convert anyone because we're all headed in the same direction. And in fact, to try and convert someone can even be seen as potentially bigoted and privileged because how dare you think your views are superior to someone else's? And how dare you think that your religion is shockingly true? And I have some news, brothers and sisters. As Christians, that's exactly what we believe. That Christ is God incarnate. And that the good news of his resurrection and reign and return to remake the world, that it's actually in progress right now. And that transcends all political affiliations. And as St. Paul reminded us in today's epistle reading, the love of Christ urges us on. Urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. I remember many years ago, and I'll conclude with this, when I was in seminary, one of our professors, he played a, a video. So in the video, there's, um, there, if you're in if you're like into magic, there's a, 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 a duo that are on television called Penn and Teller. And they have several shows and they put on magic shows and they became notorious for revealing tricks, like how magicians do tricks. And so they kind of got in trouble for that. And that was kind of part of their, what they do is to show how things are done. But um, one of them, Penn Gillette, he is an atheist. He's been an atheist for a very long time. He's very open about that. But one thing happened at one of his shows. At one of his shows, a Christian was there watching the show because they do magic shows and they kind of do comedy in it too. At one of their shows, uh, after it was over, uh, a Christian man who was there who watched the show walked up to him, shook his hand, chatted to him for a couple of minutes and said, hey, hey man, like I know you're not into this, but uh, you know, Christ loves you, right? And, and he handed him a Bible and... Uh, very polite interaction with him, handed him a Bible and left. So then afterwards, Penn made this video, which you can see uh, on YouTube. And one of the things he said was that he actually respected that the man did that. Because if you believe, and this is how I wouldn't quite frame a gospel presentation, right? But in the video, he said, if you believe that the danger of humanity is those who reject Christ are going to hell, of course you would want to tell somebody about that, right? That there's a way for you to, to not be eternally separated from God in hell, right, when you die. And he actually respected it that this man actually had the, 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 the unction, right, the urge to share that with him because his belief spurred that in him. And he said that he respected that because... His belief caused him to do something about it. And if that's what we believe as Christians, then we should be spurred on to do something about that. And oftentimes we try to make ourselves look more and more like our surrounding culture. We take on the values of our culture. We take on the mores of our culture. 
And the more we try to take on the values and the mores of the surrounding culture, the more and more of the surrounding culture we adopt until the faith is so diluted that Christ doesn't become the way, the truth, and the life that all people need to encounter, but just one path among many paths leading to some quasi-divine spark of inspiration that we all bear in, uh, inside of us. Let us, right, like St. Mary Magdalene, let us, after our encounter with Christ, the mission that our Lord called her to, to witness to his resurrection, to his identity, to his apostles, may that, may that be our mission too, that we can unafraid say, this is who we believe in, this is who we serve, and call those outside of the faith to shockingly give up their former way of life and find new and fulfilling and true life in Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory, together with his Father who is from everlasting, and his all-holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help, of food, or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. <laughs>